Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. One of the things that I really love to do is be a guest on other podcasts. And so I had the opportunity to be on a podcast called By the Doc. Sarah is the host of this podcast, and during our discussion, we explore the details of pediatrics. In her interview, we talk about the path of medical school and its various nuances, along with tips to succeed this academic rigor. We discuss how to build trust with families, interact with patients, handle difficult situations, and so much more. It was an honor to be on her podcast and offer insight into the field of pediatrics that I wanted to share it with all of you. Today we have with us Dr. Sarah Adams, who is a pediatrician at Akron's Children's Hospital in Hudson, Ohio. With over 25 years of experience, she incorporates her real-life experiences as a mother into her practice. As an associate professor at NeoMed and resident preceptor at Akron's Children's Hospital, she enjoys teaching medical students and residents. Dr. Adams is actively involved in various committees, including the Mental Health and Wellness Committee. Her passion for community outreach led her to start the podcast called Growing Up with Dr. Sarah, and she speaks at various events like the annual Ohio AAP meeting. She currently serves as a medical director of the parenting at mealtime and playtime program through the Ohio AAP. And she's a member of the Ohio AAP Foundation Advisory Board and Executive Board, focusing on improving family media usage, health, wellness, bullying prevention, and adolescent medicine as well. Thank you so much, Doctor, for being a part of this podcast. It's an honor to interview you today. I'd like to start off with asking you a little about your education in the field. And if you could just give us an overview about um, your education process, what are courses you did, the programs that you attended, college, high school, etc., and how you reached to where you are today. Thank you for asking. Once we finish high school, then the first step is to go into um, undergraduate college, which is typically four years. And so it requires four years of an undergraduate degree. And then you apply for medical school. And medical school is additional four years. And then depending on what part of medicine that you what field you're going to be involved in. The residency for pediatrics in particular is three more years. And then if you decide to go into general pediatrics, then you would you could do a fellowship, which is anywhere between two and four years. So for me, I went to undergraduate uh, university for four and a half years because I actually changed my major uh, in in the middle of undergraduate school. And I'm happy to share that why that happened. And then I went to med medical school um, at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio 
here in the U.S., and that was four years. And then I did a three-year residency, which included an internship year and then two additional years. Okay, wow. Um, that was a really long period of studying. And you mentioned your, you switched your major. So what did you switch it from? So originally, I was studying dance. So I was in the arts. And what had happened to me is I had become injured and I was no longer able to dance. Well, what had happened at that point was I really became very interested in the human anatomy and decided that I wanted to become a doctor at that point. Now, I didn't at at all decide pediatrics right from the beginning. And so that was a little bit longer of a process. That really didn't happen until I started um, almost halfway through my medical school you know, career. And so I had decided, but luckily for me, I was able to catch up pretty quickly because there's a lot of prerequisite courses that need to be taken and in order to apply for medical school. So it took me just one extra semester. Typically, undergraduate school is eight semesters, and then I I had nine. So it, it worked out very well, and that allowed me to have a little bit time off. I had about nine months off between when I fin- finished my undergraduate degree and when I actually started medical school. So I worked, and I saved some money, and um, and that was very helpful too. Wow, um, that's really cool. I've never heard anyone talk about how the, you know shifted from dance to all the way to a medical degree because so many people have changed subjects and fields, but nothing like this before. And my second question would be during you know your residency, medical training, was there any lesson that you learned that really impacted you in a significant way, and how do you still use that in your practice today? I think that medicine, because it is a practice, we've also talked about medicine as being an art, basically, in and of itself. But I would say what I learned to be the most valuable lesson was teamwork. That even though I am the doctor at the time, I was the medical student or the resident, and now I'm an an attending doctor, that it requires a team in order to care for patients. And depending on where you are and what organization, that varies. So, of course, during medical school, our team was the medical students, the residents, the attendings, the nurses, first and foremost, you know, even the front office staff, your social workers, like everybody brings something valuable to the table. And having that mindset that this is a team that I need, now that I'm an attending, I need my team in order to take good care of patients. You know, um, so yeah, even like our high school, my school really emphasizes on teamwork, working together, you know, not um, just taking leadership in a way that you are demanding everyone to do the work, you're forcing them, but rather it's like a mutual understanding between everyone so you can work together and get better results, right? Um, And then I would also like to ask you about maybe while, you know, studying something or interacting with a patient, was there an instance that changed your way of thinking, really made you see another picture of the situation and how that has helped you as well? 
That's a great question because one of the things that I was very interested in when I was a medical student is I wanted to be an obstetric gynecologist. And what had happened is, so in medical school in the U.S., you do two years of what we call didactics. And so it was two years where it's a lot of classwork and labs, et cetera. They, they do do some introduction to, you know, clinical practice, but it's, it's still, you know, you're not in the hospitals as, you know, as the third and fourth year students, you're basically there starting to care for patients. So my first rotation was OBGYN and I was really excited. And what I want to share with you as far as my story goes is what I realized and this is what really formed me into becoming a pediatrician, is it wasn't really the process of pregnancy and labor and delivery. It was the baby. And so I remember the very first delivery that I attended as a medical student. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't give the delivery, but I was there in observation. And I just was so drawn to the newborn and to this new life and the dynamics of the parents. And then I had the opportunity during this rotation too, to really follow the parents and, and get to see the baby every day. And it was really amazing because that's when I realized that it wasn't that I wanted to deliver the babies. It's I wanted to take care of the babies after they were born. And so that's when I said, I'm going to be a pediatrician. Yeah, that's such a um, nice story. I feel it's just such a um, nice way to realize what you actually want to do, because everyone says that, right, you know, um, after you truly Experience that you will know what you want and what it entails. You can't just, you know, look at it from a theoretical point point of view and everything that you'll have to do. But you actually have to experience it yourself to get that really real feel of it, and then find if it's like you know a good fit for you. I would also like to ask you about um, your study methodology. So you know why you were either in medical school during residency, etc., while appearing for the exams. Were there any uh, sort of tips or tricks that you would use to help you study not harder but in a smarter way, so you could save up time, study more? And how would you go about that entire study schedule or exam season? Yes, that's a very good question because I always biology came easy to me. Anatomy and physiology came easy. I shouldn't say easy, but I think that I could study and learn with without too much difficulty. Again, putting in the time, of course. Chemistry, on the other hand, was a little bit more difficult. So what I did that I found was really helpful, again, kind of thinking that team approach, is I made friends with those in my class and and we would work together. And I think, and I did that pretty much throughout even my medical school. So I remember doing it in undergraduate. And then in medical school, I had kind of a core group of friends and we would study together and we would quiz each other. And this is all outside of, you know, our own time to study on our own. We would make time to study together. And I would say that was hands down one of the best things I ever did. I remember too, a good friend of mine. He lived near where I did. So I live in the northern part of Ohio. Cincinnati is in the is in the southern part. And so it's a four-hour drive. So even when we would go home and we would drive together to just go home and visit, um, we would quiz 
four hours we would spend quizzing each other. So I really think it's don't be afraid to to work together with other students. And I love that because in so many ways, sometimes it can be competitive and we know that. But I think if you can put the competitive nature beside you and just realize you're all going to graduate, you're all going to be able to become a, a medical doctor Let's let's work together so that we can learn. I'm a very visual and auditory learner. So for me, doing studying like that was extremely helpful. And then you also brought like because I was very good in anatomy, I could help those that maybe struggled, but they helped me through chemistry. So I think I think that's the key for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I also think that with the academic rigorous program, you also have in competitions with your friends. It's so much more um, intimidating for a student. But if you just work together, working on one, uh, working through your weaknesses and helping out others using your strengths would be just so much more beneficial and time saving as well. So you don't have to go through that entire stressful process alone. You have everyone else to help you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had each other and we would we would take breaks sometimes. And and it was also nice to to meet friends that had similar interests. Like my one friend, she would always this was an undergraduate school. And even though she wasn't studying pre-medicine, she told me she goes, I got straight A's during my undergraduate studies because I I studied hard with you. So we we build each other up and we help each other. And that was such a, a big part of my education. And I'm, I'm grateful for my friends. Yeah, um, just empowering each other so much more better um, in a sense. And now I'd like to go on to ask you about your current situations, your work at the hospital and your entire process of consulting patients. And my first question would be about um, the child and the connection that you have to build with them, right? Um, Often it can be extremely hard to uh, build a good connection with a child, get them to trust you. So how do you make your workspace um, child-friendly, comfortable and accessible to them? And so I believe that building a rapport as soon as you walk in the room, whether it's an exam room in my clinic or whether it is the room, like a hospital room. And what I mean by that is we coin a phrase at our organization called small talk before big talk. So for example, I'll walk in, because it can be kind of scary, you know, the child sitting there waiting for the doctor. And I'll walk in and instead of like immediately starting in with, you know, what I have to do in regards to the medical part of it, I, I really work hard to build rapport. So it could be that, you know, just smiling and greeting them and asking them instead of saying, how are you? Because they could be there and they could be sick. I try to go more like, how has your day been so far? And ask open-ended questions. If they have a cute t-shirt on, for example, I might say something about their shirt Or if they're holding a stuffed animal, I'll say, who did you bring with you today? And so I really work hard to engage the child right from the beginning. I sit down. That's also very, very important versus standing up, looking over them. I sit down and I get eye level 
And I build that small talk before we really get into the big talk. And I think that not only does it help the child feel more comfortable, I think it helps with the parents too, because they calm down and we've kind of, and it really only takes a minute. It doesn't have to be a long thing because others might say, well, gosh, I don't have time for this, for the small talk, you know, but you make it and you build that rapport before you even start. And then the other thing is that I think throughout the exam, I communicate with the child, whether it's a baby all the way up to an adolescent, I tell them everything that I'm going to do and what I'm about to do so that they are comfortable and, you know, are hearing my voice and, and I try to be calm and warm and, um, and empathetic too for, for the family, because it, especially if the baby's crying, for example, it's hard on them too. Yeah, and I'd also like to share that my mom, she actually teaches in the pre-primary sections, which is like the first three years of school. So she keeps on telling me stories about um, the various ways and how they try to make the child feel comfortable, how they try, you know, to get the children to talk to them because they can be shy about that as well. So I've seen her through the years put in so much effort into just getting the children to be accustomed and to help the children, you know, embrace the surroundings and really uh, find that classroom to be their home. Yes, yes. And one of the things I actually, many pediatricians do not, we don't wear white coats because it's got that kind of scary, you know, thing about having that white coat. Right. And so I, I tend to, I dress professionally, but I dress comfortably so that if I have to get down, you know, maybe down lower at their level and, you know, um, and, you know, do different things for them. And I just give them a, a, a moment to really just feel safe in that environment. So I love that your mom is doing that too. Um, yeah, thank you. And also speaking about younger kids, right? Um, not only younger kids, but children often are, tend to be very stubborn. So how do you, you know, encourage them, empower them to make the correct lifestyle choices, to make the correct exercise habits, etc.? Yes, that's that can be challenging at times because I think sometimes physicians will say, oh, you know, you need to drink this much water a day. You need to eat five, you know, to six fruits and servings of fruits and vegetables and play or exercise 60 minutes, etc. So the answer to that question is first, we need to get their perspective and their needs and also understand their barriers. Because it's very easy for me to say, you need to do this, this, this. But if they don't have the resources, the time, the availability, you know, to, to do these things. So I think the first and foremost is to get their perspective on what they can and can't do, what they may be able to achieve. Second is also to understand their barriers. So we want to know what their perspective and goals are. What are any barriers that could interfere with what I'm recommending? And then what we do is something called motivational interviewing, where we start to say things like, how do you feel about this plan? Or what do you think about drinking you know, if it's a, if it's an adolescent saying, you know, 64 ounces of water a day, for example, like, what do you think about that? And really get their ideas on, is this something that's doable? And then the other thing is I try to just build on small steps. So if it seems like this is somebody, for example, 
that really needs to live a healthier lifestyle and they're starting from square one, then I feel like let's just pick one change, one thing that we're going to do. And I'll ask them even uh, on a scale of one to 10 and they kind of get that. Like 10 is yes, I can do this or zero is like no way. So I get an idea before they even walk out the room, what they're, how they feel about what the plan is. So that's so important because a lot of times we're like, do this, 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 thanks, follow up, you know, but I think it's very important to know what are they capable of following through with what you recommend. Yeah, I've also um, been reading a lot about how doctors have now started making their treatments extremely specialized per person. So giving the right amount of attention, looking at their needs, not being, you know, very generalized, but being extremely specific to that specific child or person. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Uh, Let's give, for example, I'll I'll use... um, ADHD, for example, attention deficit um, hyperactivity disorder. And depending on the child, the age, the environment, maybe medication is appropriate, maybe other interventions without medication. But if you don't know, if you don't ask up front what their perspective is and, and what their goals are, then it's really hard to make a plan. And so it is important to involve, I call that relationship-centered care, where they give their input and I give my input, and then we come to an agreement on what the next steps will be. And this, I have found, has not only helped with their satisfaction and, and as well as mine, but better outcomes, better outcomes in things like you know, diabetes and sugar control, better outcomes in obesity management, better outcomes in mental health. You need to know, you need to get to where they're at and know that they're, that they understand the plan and they can follow through and you're going to have, you're going to have good outcomes in that as a result. Yeah. Um, and I would also like to ask you if you're okay with sharing about a situation or somewhere where you had to deliver some bad news or some disheartening news to a family and it does not come very easily for everyone to do the same and often you know you can get panicked as uh, yourself as a doctor and you can say something wrong at times so how do you go about sharing this news so i learned this is actually a situation where i didn't do it the right way but now since then it has helped me do better. So, you know, we can't, we're not going to be perfect. So I always strive to be better. Right. And this was a situation where 11 year old girl came into my office for her regular um, checkup. Okay. And as part of the checkup, we did a urinalysis, which looks at, you know, the function of the kidneys, etc. And when I got the results and they had no complaints, like she was doing really well. Um, when I got the results, it turned out that she had a lot of sugar in her urine and that she was likely diabetic. And that is a devastating diagnosis. It's not, you know, it's just life changing, I should say. And so it was interesting because I tend to be a very optimistic person. And so first and foremost, you put yourself, empathy is so important, okay? 
And using empathy when you're delivering bad news is, is extremely important. And as we know, empathy is, is like putting yourself in, in their shoes. Well, I'm a very optimistic person. And the mistake I made that I've learned since then is that I made a comment that was, well, it's a good thing that we caught it early before she had any symptoms you know, before she got really sick, which was not a bad thing to say. But I think that what we need to learn as healthcare providers is to provide that bad news and then listen, just, just stop and let it absorb and then let them guide the questions that they have. Because they were they were not interested in optimism at that time. And so what I've learned from that is when you deliver bad news, you need to show empathy and you need to stop and just listen and be okay with some silence. You don't always have to fill all the silence. You need to let them absorb and then ask them, what questions can I answer for you? And then find opportunities to be optimistic, of course, but using your time and the timing wisely. Okay, um, so you spoke about timing and um, being empathetic, which are the two most important points, right? And, and listening, you know, because as, as physicians, we're so good at talking, <laughs> you know, we want to teach. And I love the Latin word for, for doctor is dotre, which means to teach. And I love being a doctor because I like to teach the what I feel is going to benefit them so that they can make their decisions on how they want to live their life. But sometimes we have to just sit back and be a better listener. Um, not that I'm trying to like compare the two, but even if um, like me, if I'm stressed or I've just received some bad news, I'd rather have a friend who will sit quietly and listen to me go go um, on or just sit quietly with me um, so that I feel like the support rather than, you know, then keep on giving me advice, which can sometimes just become too overwhelming at the time. And I'd also like to ask you about, since this world is constantly changing and evolving, how do you keep updated with um, everything that's happening in your field to give your patients the best level of treatment? And that has changed so much throughout the years. So I've been a pediatrician. I graduated medical school 30 years ago, and then three years of residency and 27 years in practice. And so, so much has changed. And so now I would say it is the digital world is amazing. And every day I, I read what they call it's the AAP is the American Academy of Pediatrics. And every day they put out a daily brief. And so I read the daily brief every single day. I also am very involved in you know, other ways to continue have medical education. And so because of that, and my involvement through our organization, the Children's Hospital that I work for, it's almost on a daily basis, there's information that's being provided that you can access. So I think it really comes down to, for me, I take the time every morning for 15 minutes to read about 
that like news and daily briefs of, of research and things that are relevant. And then what I do is on a weekly basis, I have my routine where I, I read the journals, which thankfully you can do online. And, um, and I usually choose what I'm reading based on some of the experiences that I've had with my own patients. Because even after 27 years, I still have to research different things. And that's what's so exciting about being a doctor is it never gets boring. Yeah, and I think um, with the um, evolution of the digital world itself has become so much more accessible to everyone because first, you know, those papers would only be um, available to scholars, academics, only people who could actually access those physical academic papers. But now it's like even a teenager like me can access any sort of research paper on any topic and it's so accessible. Now just one Google search away. Yes, one of my favorite online resources is something called up to date and that is that is it's it's a great way to get a quick resource i have it on my lap, laptop i can even access it when i'm in a patient's room if i need to so that's kind of my go to when i need to get information right away and then i would say you know the the pediatrics is probably my my most read journal, for example, and um, and I used to get the actual copy in the mail, and now I can access it, it digitally as well. Yes, and also speaking of the digital world itself, you know, AI is a really um, is a field that's really growing at this um, current time, and it's growing at a fast pace as well. So, what do you think the role of AI is in your field, and how is it being used today, and how you, how do you think it will be used in the future as well? I think the most important thing right now in our organization, we we. We don't in particular, because I actually work for the, the organization, the Children's Hospital, we are not currently using AI. I have had some experience in it when I've done some writing of my own, but I think the most important thing is, is to educate yourself about the, the risks and the benefits, because it, it's amazing now that we can look up so many different things that it's important also to know what are what are your resources and with ai i worry a lot about what what type of connection i have and so i haven't really gotten into a practice of using it just yet but i do tell my families who ask me about it which i think it's important to just make sure just like anything that you're using a reputable site that you're using a reputable resource and don't be afraid to read reviews and to research it instead of taking the first you know the first thing that comes up because that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best option yeah it has to be. it it's in our future though we i think we have to understand that it is and at some point embrace it thanks for listening to another episode of growing up with dr sarah If you enjoyed this episode and think the information shared here today could benefit someone else, take a screenshot of the episode and post to your Instagram story. Make sure you tag us at Growing Up With Dr. Sarah so we can spread the word about the show and continue to grow in our mission to support as many parents and families as possible. 
Hey, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or would like to suggest a topic, please visit www.growingupwithdrsarah.com slash contact. Thanks again for spending time with us today. Stay tuned for a brand new episode next week as we continue to grow up together.